Father, again, we come to this, your word. Remind us again, <coughs> as we consider it, who we are before, before you and in your sight. That we might reassure ourselves from the scriptures that we are numbered in your kingdom. And that we have responsibilities because of faith. And with responsibilities, trials will come. Father, help us to see your glory. And help us to see ourselves before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 5, as we return to the, the uh, Beatitudes. Matthew 5, and uh, I want particularly to turn our attention to the last Beatitude, that's verse 10 of Matthew 5, and I'll just read Matthew 5, verse 10 through to 12, because they uh, deal with the same subject. Uh, verse 11 and 12, uh, rather than, be, uh, rather than uh, seeing them as separate Beatitudes, it's perhaps better to understand uh, them as an exposition or an, out, an explanation of the outworking of uh, verse 10. Verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's a lot of persecution about today, uh, particularly in other nations. There's a certain degree of persecution today uh, in Australia, uh, but it's not uh, so obvious, I guess, um, but it will become more and more obvious over the next uh, few years as uh, our lawmakers uh, I shouldn't blame the lawmakers, should I? Thinking about it, lawmakers change the laws because of the people of the nation. And, uh, but as those laws are changed because of national pressures of society, as they're brought... Those laws remove any re reference to the Lord, to Jesus Christ. They change laws that would de deny the ethic and moral, moral of the scriptures, the word of God, for ab abortion for argument's sake. Um, and I might also include capital punishment in that because it denies the authority of scripture. And so we can expect to see some form of persecution more obvious than what it is today. From verse 3 to 7, uh, we have a description of uh, how it is that we're to be right with God. To be right with God, we must be poor in spirit. That is to demonstrate before God a, a sense of humility, putting ourselves aside and putting ourselves last and elevating him. Christ is the one who must be elevated, 
not we ourselves. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Uh, They mourn their sin. Yes, we're conscious of our sin. And we need to be sorry for it and to express that. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. You see, one of the consequences of being brought to faith is that we hunger and thirst after a knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're to grow in his grace. We're to grow more and more to be Christ-like. And to do that, there has to be this desire, this hunger and this thirst to know him. Verse 7 is, blessed are the merciful. Just as God has been merciful to us in drawing us to faith and knowledge of Jesus as Christ and bringing us to salvation, so we are to express mercy to the community around us that they might see the joy and the greatness of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has brought. Then verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart. You see, if we want to know what we are to be before God, this is the answer. We must be pure in heart. And as a consequence of these things, blessed are the peacemakers. And we shouldn't think of peacemaking as stopping arguments between people. Individuals primarily. We shouldn't think of it as stopping arguments in the international sense as the United Nations tries to do. They send the United Nations into places like Syria, Afghanistan. In Syria they send them in without guns. In Somalia they sent them in without guns. As peacemakers or, as they often refer to it, as keeping the peace. They're not there in the first place because there's peace. They're there because there's disruption and violence. There's war and bitterness. And at a human level, if warring nations are going to be brought to heel, one has to take a very big stick. Blessed are the peacemakers. Keeping international peace, I would suggest, is not the context of this verse. To make peace in this whole context of the Sermon on the Mount is for the Christian church, for individual members who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour to minister to those around them that they would know the peace that comes between God and man. In other words, we have to witness to the realities of Jesus Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sin. Because when we acknowledge our sin, our sin is forgiven. Peace is made between God and man, between God and myself. Perhaps... Herein lies the reason why the Christian church today in this land, at least, 
whilst not despised, it's not listened to largely. And I wonder if that's because it's lost its sense of being peacemakers. The bulk of the Christian church today wants to be politically correct. And if we're going to be politically correct, then we cannot be peacemakers because we're denying Jesus Christ. Or at least pulling him down and raising other gods up. It's ironic, isn't it? It says, blessed are the peacemakers. And the consequence of that is in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted. For my sake, says Jesus. And so we come to the nitty-gritty of this particular verse, verse 10. (coughs) It's also worth noting that verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, and verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted, reflect the very nature of the world around us. The world around us, the unbelieving world, is at war with God. And because it's at war with God, there will be persecution of those who are not at war with God. It's a rather searching beatitude and uh, we need to be careful as we treat it and think about it because it's the one beatitude that's most liable to misunderstanding. Christians over the centuries, and they still do it today, um, or some do it today, Unless they're doing something to draw attention to themselves and they're under attack. They don't feel they've achieved anything. They only feel their eternal security if they are under attack for something they have said and done. But that is not persecution. It may be zealousness. It's not persecution for righteousness sake. It may be zealousness. It may be outright stupidity. But it is not being persecuted for righteousness sake. Persecution is something that the Christian man, a woman, boy or girl should never ever pursue. There is no warrant in it. In the scriptures whatsoever. Persecution will come simply in its own course and and, and, and timing when we live as Christians ought to live. It will come. And it will come in one form or another. I don't know whether I've ever used it in a sermon or not, but Forgive me if I'm repeating myself. I can't remember whether I've used it here. Uh, Some years ago, when we were in full-time ministry, 
I was conducting a funeral. The church was absolutely packed. And the text uh, that I was using was John 14, 6. Jesus Christ, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And uh, I chose that text because the deceased person, that was their favourite verse. And people knew that. So I used that. And about... uh, from here to the corner of the front pew there, there was a lady sitting. And as I was preaching, I could see the blood pressure rising. You could see the blood pressure coming up and up and up. And I, I observed that. It didn't frighten me, but I thought this is going to be interesting at the end. She sought me out afterwards and I discovered she was a minister and she ripped a shred off me. How dare you preach that? How dare you preach Jesus Christ and him crucified? I'm going to take you to the whatever court trial. And I said, all right, see you in court. And I walked away from her and left her standing. But that's a form of persecution which I wasn't expecting when you're preaching in the Christian church and... Somebody who purports to be a leader in the Christian church says you're wrong. You're arrogant. You're extreme. You have no love. And isn't that what they say of the God of the Old Testament? He was a brutal God. And all he was doing throughout the Old Testament was preparing his people for the first coming of Jesus Christ. And showing the world that he is and always will be. And that his name will be honoured on the earth. And and, uh, uh, that he will be praised. There's more persecution today. One of the interesting things I found out when I was preparing for this sort of topic. Was that uh, there's more persecution today than since the uh, Roman Empire at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. More persecution today since the Roman Empire and the first two-thirds of the Christian era. And under the Roman Empire and uh, right through to the Reformation, those periods of persecution were usually localised rather than uh, nation, national or even international. The Reformation itself saw great periods of persecution across, right across Ireland, Scotland, Britain, Holland, France, Germany. At the hands of the established church through the agency of the civil authorities. In the last 80 years, there's been a steady increase of persecution around the world. Executions, imprisonments, torture, and, and also in a nation as ours uh, through legislation. Persecution, let's think about it negatively for a moment. Persecution, for righteousness sake, is not that we get attacked or or criticised or whatever it is. 
because we are objectionable. Now there are Christians who stand up and preach fire and brimstone and make so-called stands on some obscure thing. And people dislike them because they're objectionable. But that is not persecution for righteousness' sake. It's more persecution for the sake of senselessness and sensitivity. Being difficult as Christians, which results in an attack of some sort, is not being spoken of here in this passage, and we should never take any comfort from it when we put our foot in our mouth, as it were. We act hastily or without consideration. We may well suffer some form of mild persecution, if I can use that word, for our folly in the way we handle the scriptures or we handle those who question us. Some years ago, I had a young fellow that was brought to me, and uh, <laughs> nice young fellow in his early twenties, and um, he'd never been in a church in his life. And in our discussions. As I probed him, as he opened up a little bit, I discovered that he he told me straight out, and I can't remember the exact words, it was something like, uh, my religious knowledge comes from ABC Compass. Do you know the ABC program called Compass? Okay. Oh, my heart sank. Anyway, he asked me, do you believe in creation? Nobody believes that anymore. And I said, yes, I believe in it. And he sat back in his armchair and he looked on his face. He just could not believe that he's met somebody who believes in creation. He didn't have a go at me. He said, why do you believe that? And I picked up my Bible, flipped it open to Genesis 1 and read the first three chapters to him. And waited for the next question. And on and on the discussion went. But not once did he attack me. He questioned me. Yes. But if I had handled that hastily or threatened him with hellfire and damnation, what might have happened? He came back and back and back and eventually lost interest. And that's fine. I didn't get anywhere. But at least he knew who Jesus Christ was. At least he knew and learnt what the scripture was. And one day when he stands before eternity, if he's not brought to faith before then, Christ is going to ask him one question 
as he will of all of us. What did you do with me? Who do you think I am? If our spirit, if our nature, our personal uh, demeanour is one of the tends to excitement and zealously, uh, zealousness, we need to learn to temper that with the grace of Jesus Christ. If we're shy and retiring, we need to temper that with the grace of Christ that we might have courage in speaking about him. An example of being difficult. Um, have you ever come across so, somebody who clings to a particular translation of the Bible and rants and raves about it when somebody is not using it? They create division. The congregation that I went to after college had that take place in the congregation, split it right down the middle and divided it. The same gentleman who did that would go around all the ladies every Sunday morning and remind them that they didn't have a hat on, didn't have their head covered. He reminded them that they were wearing slacks and not a dress or a skirt. Reminded the men and the boys if the hair was a bit too long. You see how divisions come and they get criticised. The person concerned gets criticised and brought before the elders in this case. But he enjoyed it because he was being persecuted. Do you see? But it was stupidity, it was ignorant. It wasn't persecution for righteousness' sake. What is it to practice righteousness? Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 25. Let me read it to you. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 25. Why do we go back to the Old Testament for a definition? Because the teaching to be about, about righteousness begins in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament itself under the Holy Spirit gives us a definition of what it is to be righteous. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 25. We'll read verse 24. The Lord commanded us, now remember this is Moses coming out, bringing the people out of Egypt. The Lord has commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear. That's the context, I should say. Uh, The Lord has commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is to this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe these commandments. The Lord's teaching us here that to be righteous is to keep the commandments of God, is to keep the law of God, is to keep the love of God, is to keep the grace of God. It is to conform 
to the person and the character of God. What is God like? Read the Ten Commandments. We often, we read the Ten Commandments in a similar way and we read the Beatitudes often. We miss the point if we apply them to practical living in the first instance. Nothing wrong with that. They're good codes to live by. But that's not the point of them. The point of them is for us to know who God is. What is he God like? Who is he? I'm the only God, he says in the Ten Commandments. It's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. There are none. They're all blocks of stone and pieces of wood who can't hear and respond to the pleas of those who worship them. I hear you. I hear your prayer. And I respond. And on and on we can go. What is God like? Read the Ten Commandments. So righteousness, to be righteous, is to be Christ-like. And the only way we can do that is to come to the Scriptures regularly and constantly. Those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are those who are more like Christ. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, Yes, all who desire to live godly in Jesus Christ will suffer persecution. All those who desire to live as Christ lives, all those who desire to be peacemakers as Christ is the ultimate peacemaker, will be persecuted. And when we consider the scriptural warrant for this, we can go back into beginning the Old Testament. Consider Abel. Computed, persecuted for righteousness sake. Abel was killed by Cain because his offering was Christ-like, if you like. It conformed to the law of God. Cain didn't like it and so he murdered Abel. Abel was persecuted by Cain for righteousness sake. David was persecuted by King Saul. And by members of his family, read Hebrews 11. Consider Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaac, Daniel. Consider the Apostle Paul, stoned, left for dead two or three times. And of course, the supreme example is Jesus Christ. These people, none of them in the in the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, none of them were persecuted because they had a cause. None of them were persecuted because they were difficult. None of them were persecuted because they were overzealous, but simply because they were righteous. They lived a Christ-like life. Jesus Christ, the supreme example, one who had absolute perfect, who was absolute uh, perfection, perfect in his gentleness and meekness, in his compassion and his love. And yet he was put on a cross because he claimed to be God, because he claimed authority to forgive sin. Why are the righteous persecuted? 
because they are different. That is why the Pharisees and the scribes hated Jesus. His own personal conduct showed up their inadequacies and shortcomings. Something about Jesus Christ condemned them. And he didn't even have to open his mouth. He brought salvation, grace and peace. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and scribes, they neither brought salvation nor grace nor peace. But they brought law and the harshness of it. What's our view of Jesus Christ? Do we see him simply as one who is to be applauded by the world and by the church? Do we see him as one who is simply an expert at social justice? And if you listen carefully to various programs on the television, and uh, Compass is one of them, or you read some of the religious press, Jesus is praised for his social justice. He's used as a flag, if you like, for social justice in our society today. And if that's the way we think of him, then we do not know him as we ought. This verse also challenges our view as to what a Christian is. Christian is one, is not one who is like the world. A Christian is one who lives a life of commitment first to Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. For that is what they did of the false prophets. I used to always get worried when I was in full-time ministry. You'd walk out after a service, and particularly we had a lot of visitors at Somerville because it was Mornington Peninsula and a lot of holiday makers, and they were here Sunday and gone the next. And they would pat you on the back and sing your praises, and I always say to one of the elders, what was my sermon like? Did I preach heresy? (laughs) I never liked self-praise. I never liked being a recipient of praise for that very reason, because it's not the test of godliness. The test of godliness is that we live Christ-like lives. Amen.